Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. A Yale academic rediscovers America from a Native standpoint, and a poet weaves his memories of Guam with creative glimpses of colonial influences. Our two guests today take fresh looks at their homelands, and each won a National Book Award in the process. Today we add two more books to our Native bookshelf with Ned Blackhawk and Craig Santos Perez. They approach colonialism and their indigenous roots with distinctive insights, and we'll hear from both of them right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. An Alaskan writer's new book has received a nod from the American Library Association's prestigious Newbery Award. KOTZ's Desiree Hagen reports the book's a retelling of an Inupiaq story that was lost for nearly a century. Nasirak Rainey Hobson lives in Anaktuvik Pass, Alaska, a community of about 300 people, roughly 70 miles above the Arctic Circle. The 46-year-old author and illustrator published her first book, Eagle Drums, last September. The book is a retelling of the first Messenger Feast, a traditional midwinter gathering that celebrates Inupak dance, art, and storytelling. The festival died out after Presbyterian missionaries came to the Arctic, but was revived in the late 1980s. And they based all the, the feast and celebrations on the recollections of elders who remember attending it as children. And one of the things they remembered was a story that explained how our people got music and song and dance from the eagles. Hobson's book, Eagle Drums, follows a young hunter named Pinga who is kidnapped by a giant eagle. Taken to the eagle's village, Pinga learns practical wisdom and drumming, along with traditional Inupak values like sharing, community, and avoiding conflict while living among giant eagles who frequently shapeshift into humans. Interspersed between pages are Hobson's colored pencil illustrations that guide the narrative. Hobson says her two daughters were her biggest inspiration for the book. I think it's important that we create things for our kids to see themselves in. Her book has already received several awards, including the American Indian Youth Literature Honor, which recognizes the best writing and illustration by and about Indigenous peoples. For National Native News, I'm Desiree Hagan. Kiowa author N. Scott Mamaday's legacy is being remembered after his death last week in Santa Fe, New Mexico, at age 89. His first published novel, Housemaid of Dawn, made him the first Native American to win a Pulitzer Prize. Hannah Bissett has more. Scott Mamaday, or So I Tali, which means rock tree boy, was an author, poet, painter, and lecturer. Mamaday often wrote about his experience as an indigenous person in modern times. In the 70s, that was uncommon, according to his close friend and co-worker Shirley Snavy. Snavy, who worked with Mamaday on several projects throughout the years, remembered the impact he made with his first book. That was a game changer at that time in history that he was able to tell this very intimate story about the experience of a warrior in modern times. At the time of publishing Housemaid of Dawn, the understanding of PTSD for veterans was slim to none. Snavy says that Mamaday's ability to write this story resonated with veterans coming home from war. To be able to hear a story and think to themselves, 
Oh my gosh, that's my story. Now I understand why I feel the way we do. They met on a project called American Masters, where Mama Day was the star of an episode. I always wanted to get some story from one of our famous people on that program, because after all, we are the original American Masters. To make that happen, she began the work for the episode, including the search for an all-Kiowa production team. His way of storytelling has just really honored the Kiowa legend, so I was just really grateful that we were able to put that documentary together. Mamaday also wrote stories for children's literature and taught at a variety of universities. He was also an illustrator, particularly in watercolor, which is highlighted in several of his poetry books. I'm Hannah Bissett. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by BNSF Railway, proudly supporting the nation's economy by moving the goods that feed, supply, and power communities across the country. More at bnsf.com slash tribal relations. Skuktash. For more than 40 years, Ramona Farms has revived ancient traditional foods, tepary beans, pinoli, polentas, and more, all from store.ramonafarms.com. Ramona Farms supports this show. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling, your National Humanities Medal awarded radio show and podcast. U.S. history goes under re examination in the book. Rediscovery of America, Native Peoples, and the Unmaking of U.S. History by Yale University professor Ned Blackhawk. He puts an indigenous spin on five centuries of U.S. history. And Craig Santos-Perez adds a new collection of experimental and visual poetry to his series from Unincorporated Territory. It's named Amat. The book is a unique take on the history and culture of the indigenous people of Guam. Both of these works won the 2023 National Book Award. We'll speak with the authors today, but we also want to hear from you. Are you familiar with either Blackhawks or Perez's works? Join our conversation with a comment or question by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE, and we've got the phone lines open now, folks. Joining us first from New Haven, Connecticut, is Dr. Ned Blackhawk. He is the Howard R. Lamar Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University and author of Rediscovery of America, Native Peoples, and the Unmaking of U.S. History. He is Western Shoshone. Ned, welcome to Native America Calling, and congratulations on your National Book Award. Thank you so much for uh, the invitation and the congratulations. You bet. And joining us from San Diego, California, is Dr. Craig Santos-Perez. He is the author of From Unincorporated Territory, Amat. He is Chamoru. Craig, welcome to our show as well, Native America Calling, and congratulations on your National Book Award. Oh, half a day, and thank you so much for having me. 
Ned, I want to go ahead and start with you first. Uh, you gave an acceptance speech when you won your award and you said your book has been a long time in the making and you added that you couldn't identify the book's precise origin. So this begs the question, when do you think the seeds of this book were first planted in your mind? Um, there are, I think, probably a series of uh, personal and intellectual kind of formative moments that I would uh, identify um, if if asked to do so. And um, the intellectual ones are kind of reflected in the book's title and some of its early um, introductory materials. When I, um, you know, basically began or uh, realizing that over the last 20 or 25 years, this incredible scholarly uh, outpouring of works in Native American history have made uh, U.S. history fundamentally different than uh, than it was beforehand. And I did come to graduate school about 30 years ago or so at a time when Native American history was not well institutionalized, was not well respected, was not well taught across uh, most um, leading academic institutions. Um, that's still the case in certain places, but it's changed dramatically, in part because there has been this new generation of scholars who have rediscovered American history. And so my title really is a recognition of those who've worked uh, both within the academy as well as tribal communities to bring um, to light uh, this essential dimension of American history. Um, that's the intellectual part. Uh, the personal part might be that I've always been drawn to a Native American history as um, uh, you know, a young adult and, um, and thereafter. And I've always understood that there's something in this subject that I feel needs uh, further clarification. And so um, I've been doing various types of Native American history really um, ever since I was in college. And um, I'm not sure when exactly I thought when someone should write an overview book, uh, but it was probably about 15 or 20 years ago when the real seeds were planted. All right, so almost two decades. Now, Ned, when writing The Rediscovery of America, to what extent were you able to draw from previous work or research that you'd already performed and other scholars as well? Um, it is a, uh, a work that draws very, very heavily upon uh, existing um, literatures. And so uh, there are 12 chapters in the book. It's divided into two two parts. Uh, the first part is basically um, Native American history since contact to the formation of the U.S. Constitution in 1787. The second half is essentially um, uh, uh, six chapters as well about uh, U.S. Indian relations since the formation of the United States. Um, each of those chapters, there's 12 of them, uh, required uh, intensive um, engagement with the existing scholarship and studies, some of which I was already familiar with, a few of which I had initiated myself. Um, I wrote a master's thesis on relocation programs to Los Angeles in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, my, first, uh, my dissertation and first book are on um, Shoshone and Ute and Paiute histories in the Great Basin, uh, are you know, homeland. And um, I've read and taught many uh, other subjects uh, over my course, uh, or over the course of my career as a Native American historian. So uh, nothing I did uh, in this book was 
deeply immersed in a new uh, scholarly archive or resource, but more an immersion into this uh, vast literature that has been uh, de developed over the past generation. Thank you, Ned. And this theme of the book that you mentioned, the lack of acknowledgement by historians of the indigenous history of the United States and the extent to which it is interwoven with the rise of European colonial and also later American history, what's the feedback are you getting? Is the book moving the needle on the relevance of indigenous history among academics and others? I'd like to think so. And my um, editors and um, partners at the Yale University Press who published it are saying that it is um, generating um, much um, excitement and um, uh, um, dissemination. And I'm really touched that places like Birch Bark Books in, uh, Saint, in Minneapolis, um, Louise Erdrich's um, uh, run um, Native American um, bookstore have made it one of their profiled works. Um, I've seen it uh, in airports and uh, it got reviewed in the New York Times and uh, the New Yorker, there was a nice uh, back cover page ad. And so it is kind of reaching into new places for um, you know, academic studies of Native American history, generally speaking. So that's really kind of satisfying. Um, I can't really assess its kind of um, impact in, in a kind of his, in, among historians. Uh, uh, it may take, um, I'd say in the introduction, it will take uh, generations for us to really reform some of the um, uh, poor uh, con constructions of U.S. history that have so systematically um, ignored indigenous peoples. Um, and I hope that this is an important uh, step in, in that uh, reformation. Now, your book begins with an overview of the different European nations and how they approached colonization, the Spanish, the French, the Dutch, and of course, the English. And uh, just lots of really interesting facts about uh, the Seven Years' War, the Revolutionary War, the Civil War. Um, what did you learn? What types of historical facts and information did you learn? And are you most excited about sharing with our listeners today? Because there's just so much information in this book. Um, I did learn a lot, and it was very exciting and rewarding uh, towards the end as the final chapters fell into place and kind of larger themes emerged. I'm uh, not sure if I can pinpoint any exact um, uh, instances that I think everyone should uh, be aware of. Um, some of them are kind of scholarly in the sense that I do think we've misunderstood the place of Native Americans in the formation of the American Republic in a fundamental way. Um, most conventional studies of the revolutionary era and particularly the formation of the U.S. Constitution don't mention Native peoples in any uh, real sustained form, even though both the Declaration and the Constitution do so. So when the when the subject matter is in the documents and the literature doesn't reflect the, that subject matter, then there's something wrong. And so uh, those chapters I'm really kind of proud of in the sense that they they expose that fallacy or that kind of misunderstanding. Uh, but I don't think the facts are really that interesting in this as much as, as other facts might be. So I'm really also excited about the, the latter chapters where Native voices kind of emerge more clearly given the kind of uh, larger sorts of uh, source materials to draw upon from newspapers or uh, published works, um, uh, even interviews. Uh, so I'm really happy that um, I was able to make sense of, say, things like um, 
the formation of the Society of American Indians in 1911, which happened in uh, Oneida, Wisconsin, in Laura Cornelius Kellogg's cabin. You know, I didn't know the, the exact dimensions of her role in that process, but she's the kind of driving central leader of this of this incredibly important uh, political organization, the first, in fact, national Indian political advocacy group founded in 1911, the Society of American Indians. Uh, subsequent members of that society, as many may know, include other prominent early 20th century Native American intellectuals, Carlos Montezuma, Charles Eastman, Henry Rowcloud, and his partner Elizabeth Bender Cloud, Zeke or Gertrude Bonham, all of whom had you know, extensive uh, visions and ideas and forms of political activism and ultimately agency that reshaped the world around them and reformed Indian policy in these fundamental ways. So that's chapter 11. Um, I'm really, you know, really, I was really excited to uh, see uh, the depth of these uh, Native leaders' thoughts and actions and legacies um, and try to kind of explore them in ways that um, the literature suggests, but a lot of people don't often know much about. We're talking now with Ned Blackhawk about his National Book Award winning new Na'a book. It is historical nonfiction, Rediscovery of America, Native Peoples, and the Unmaking of U.S. History. We're going to talk with we're going to talk more with Ned after this short break here. And I encourage anybody, if you are interested in this book, if you have any insights with regard to early colonization of the Americas and the indigenous impacts and influences thereof, or if you're interested in more contemporary issues that Ned also highlights in his book, give us a call, share your thoughts, share your questions. Our phone lines are open and our number is 1-800-996-2848. We're waiting for your call right now. Talk with Ned Blackhawk about his book. And of course, we also have Craig Santos Perez, who will be joining us later to talk about his award-winning book as well. Several major museums are taking down public displays of native items after a new law took effect in January. The new language to the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act requires better consultation with tribes. We'll find out how the new law is affecting what institutions can and can't do on the next Native America Calling. Support for this program provided by Vision Maker Media, who envisions a world changed and healed by understanding Native stories and the public conversations they generate. Nurturing the next generation of storytellers with courage, generosity, creativity, respect, and commitment. 45-plus years of Native stories and Indigenous knowledge through film and media can be found at visionmakermedia.org, whose slogan is, Together We Are Vision Makers. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. We're speaking now with Yale University professor Dr. Ned Blackhawk about his new book, Rediscovery of America, which won a National Book Award. If you have a comment or question for Ned Blackhawk, you can join the discussion by calling 1-800-996-2848. And you can also leave a comment on our website or social media pages like Facebook and Instagram. Now, Ned, I'm always amazed when reading history that affirms how dependent the European colonists and later Americans were on Native people, not just economically, but also militarily and politically. And you note in your book that success, uh, the success of the Europeans 
was just as likely uh, colossal failures as well. They had so many setbacks and so many challenges and uh, and for much longer periods than perhaps many people realize. And, and you capture that fact in the following quote from noted historian Francis Jennings. He says, incapable of conquering true wilderness, Europeans were highly, highly skilled in the act of conquering other people. Please expand on that for our listeners. Huh. Um... Yeah, the conquest of America, um, the celebration of what is often called the discovery of America, the kind of conventional narratives we have of what some U.S. textbooks might call the American pageant, have long uh, framed U.S. history and its origins, development, and expansion as one of uh, inevitability, of triumph, of celebratory um development, uh, some would use terms like civilization and or um, uh, ad, um, advancement. Um, those terms actually misconstrue the history of North America in fundamental ways, in part because they um, not only celebrate, uh, overly um, celebrate uh, only some uh, social communities in the American experience, uh, but they misconstrue the dependency, the contingency, the centrality of pre-existing indigenous uh, uh, polities, economies, uh, industries in uh, enabling uh, the expansion and survival of European settlements. So um, that's why the first two chapters, as you referenced, are all essentially 17th century uh, chapters on the varied empires of North America. Um, and the first part of the book, in part one, is called Indians and Empires. And so if we can think of Indians and Empires as a kind of alternative frame of analysis, if we can think of American history not as a, a moment of discovery but of encounter, we can move past these um, unhelpful categories of analysis and uh, break apart some of the um, uh, congealed or calcified uh, forms of knowledge that have so readily um, frozen or excluded indigenous peoples. And so I like to use this term agency to highlight the centrality of indigenous thought, action, uh, production, um, gender relations, and other forms of material labor or other forms of uh, labor that yielded material goods like furs or deerskins or uh, foods, uh, gardens, you know, uh, the kind of centrality of indigenous women's labor to the Mandan villages along the Missouri that I write about or among the Iroquois um, in the southwest along the Rio Grande Pueblos is a missing component of U.S. women's history largely. So these are the kind of um, frames of analysis that we can uh, uh, kind of move past by looking at those types of particular uh, historical subjects and examples. I like all of those elements you include with regard to the history of Native women. And you talk about how the Abenaki women, for example, they played a vital role in Northeast horticulture. They controlled the harvests as well as the fur trade. That's right. And um, and the Puritan settlers who arrived in uh, 1620 and, uh, and throughout the 1620s and 30s were so heavily dependent on uh, Native peoples for survival, that they often used things like wampum in their economic um, transactions. Uh, they um, uh, 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 de became dependent on uh, various forms of, of 
of not just economic trade, but often uh, military alliances with existing <clears throat> Wampanoag and other uh, resident Massachusetts uh, communities. Uh, they then eventually use those uh, alliances to displace other indigenous peoples in their expansion south uh, in what is famous in this part of North America um, in the Puritan conquest of of New England uh, during what, is, what others might call the Pequot War period. Um, so there's a kind of centrality of indigenous people to all of these formative chapters of American history. Um, and this book is not exhaustive. It's not comprehensive. I wish actually there was far more attention to indigenous women's history uh, within it. Um, that might be um, a, a challenge for um, another uh, scholar to uh, similarly perhaps um, fashion these kind of synthetic uh, overviews of really important subjects that have historically not been told. Let's take a caller, Chico, who is listening in Santa Fe, New Mexico, on station KUNM. Hello, Chico. Thanks for calling in today. Yes, hi, and um, thank you so much for having this program this morning. Ned, I want to acknowledge and recognize what I consider to be your incredibly articulate and insightful delivery, uh, combined with, of course, uh, another description I would give, your seasoned and inspirational wisdom. I've uh, investigated these matters for many years myself as a white Native American. I am not a Native person, but I was born and raised on this continent after many generations of my family being here. So in some sense, I like to consider myself as being as close as possible to a Native as I can. One of the components of that for me was that growing up in the United States as a white man, as a white boy in a white culture, I found myself continuously looking towards Native American cultures for inspiration and guidance. And that's a real feeling. That's not something that I'm making up. And so as an artist professional now, living and working in Santa Fe for over three decades, going on four. I think it's critical that, for myself at least, I make an effort to reach out to those cultures that I've just referred to, all of them, which have inspired me and which have contributed so much to whom I consider myself to be as a person, as a soul walking this earth. So right. when I hear your voice and I hear your wisdom, all I want to do is just, you know, shake your hand, maybe even give you a big bear hug and say thank you so much for being who you are. <laughs> now, I want all to right. hear your opinion. Uh, Ned, this is interesting. Chico calls in and uh, talks about how your book moved him. And I want to ask you, because, and maybe this is a question better suited to a psychologist, but why do you think that so many scholars and others ignore the truths that are revealed here? In this case, the cruelty and greed by which America was built. I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Uh, well, I'm not a psychologist, um, so I, I can't explore uh, psychoanalytic or other types of uh, some conscious potential motivations. Um, but I can say that one of the problems with academic scholarship in these areas is that it's been um, that the, by, by marginalizing uh, what you call the truth or what others might call um, alternative um, 
perspectives, um, hidden histories, um, subaltern uh, experiences, by ignoring um, these fundamental insights and lessons, we've created kind of apparatuses or structures of understanding that are not just partial, but they're built on um, on shaky or inappropriate or perhaps um, exclusionary foundations. And it's been really hard to get Native American history, as you know, um, into any kind of conventional uh, place in American historical inquiry. K through 12 schools in certain states are now mandated to teach it. I taught at the University of Wisconsin in Madison for 10 years, and um, uh, they have a, an act on their state legislature called Act 31 that requires the instruction. Um, it may not be all, always effectively implemented, but the intent um, is there. Uh, this followed, <clears throat> as you may know, some of the intense um, anti-Indian uh, treaty protests from the uh, fishing rights uh, struggles in the region in the 1980s. Um, so uh, there's um, an inability to kind of move past the formations that are already in place. And academia is full of specialized scholars, and you don't kind of learn how to do something uh, without kind of learning uh, the technicalities of certain fields or disciplines or subfields sub or literatures. And so uh, we're learning essentially sometimes more and more about less and less. And so this book is trying to uh, take us potentially, or at least trying to in advance a kind of a frame of analysis that can bring together uh, disparate or seemingly disconnected subjects under a single um, umbrella or paradigm. Ned, your book takes us uh, to the contemporary era. You write about the termination period, self-determination. You write about Native activism and uh, even the Cold War era and sovereignty issues. And what do you think that uh, just not just tribal leaders, but other Native people who will read this book, or even non-Native people, what do you hope they, they most take away? What, what do they most gain from reading this book? And how can they apply any of these lessons to either policies or just decisions that we might make in our daily lives? You know, I think the focus on the, the post-war era is a very helpful one. And it's one that took me a long time to kind of uh, bring together and make intelligible to myself um, in that it, we all have come to know that termination was a disaster for Native America starting uh, in 53 with the passage of House Concurrent Resolution 108 and then going all the way into the early 70s when Nixon and um, uh, the federal government began establishing more self-determination efforts. That period of roughly 20 or 25 years, which had uh, momentum beforehand and continued after, was um, extraordinarily uh, disruptive for Native America and filled with all kinds of histories of loss that you're familiar with, and many of your listeners will be as well. Um, uh, my, you know, you know, it's people like our our parents, you know, our family members. Someone like my father left um, his tribal homeland to go to college and eventually found work in an urban environment, joining other urban Indians, some of whom had been through relocation, other of whom had been veterans or fought in uh, Vietnam, others who had been like incarcerated. Um, this kind of urbanization history, uh, the forms of adoption that the federal government was um, establishing or enabling, um, all the kind of difficulties that Indian community members are likely familiar with from this era um, uh, began 
finally finding certain forms of redress uh, in the late 60s and early 70s. And so much of this book is like rooted in um, that kind of uh, subject matter, or much of that chapter is uh, around uh, the emergence or rise of self-determination, which is codified in 1975 and has all these other kind of statutory or congressional laws that we should um, you know, all see as kind of signs of indigenous um, 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 rights achievements. Uh, the and so, if we understand this period well, we can understand the subsequent periods as well. And so, in the 80s, uh, which I was really surprised to hear, uh, according to some sociologists, the per capita Indian uh, per, per capita income for Native Americans actually went down during the 80s than it was in the 70s. And so, that's a claim that I'm not I make in the book, but I'm drawing upon others, and I'm not maybe perhaps sufficiently. Um, informed by to really explain the, the metrics by which that uh, claim was uh, determined. But it shows that in the 80s, particularly during Reaganomics, so many cuts to federal funding sent, in, sent all these kind of reverberations into worlds in which the federal government had begun doing different things for Native peoples in terms of education and housing and health and human services and so forth. And so all of a sudden, in the 80s, new ideas get advanced around economic development, and so the origins of Indian gaming and kind of new economic policy priorities are really found um, in kind of dialogue with the curb or the kind of rollback of the self-determination efforts. And it's not incoincidental that all these kind of court cases begin reversing uh, Indian jurisdiction in places in the, like in cases like the Oliphant decision or and subsequent erosions that start happening. So we're still living in this moment of judicial and political uncertainty and often backlash against the achievements that are um, the legacy of this activist world. So uh, even though it's decades old now, uh, we're still kind of fighting to get ICWA or the Indian Child Welfare Act uh, upheld constitutionally. And so we have to stand guard. We have to be vigilant. We have to be informed when we enter into spaces and conversations about the future of Native America. Well, Craig, thank you again for, for joining our show today, and congratulations on your book, and good luck going forward. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Absolutely. Dr. Craig Santos Press is our next guest, and he's the author of From Unincorporated Territory, Amat. Uh, Craig, hello. Thank you for your patience. Yes, it was great to hear your interview with Ned. Absolutely. Now, let's talk about your book, also a National Book Award winner, 2023. And I, I love the first poem in your book. It's this long string of intriguing questions slash statements related to facts about Guam. And there's historical, political, geographical, even some pop culture references. And I was just so humbled reading it because I realized how little I know about Guam. Was that your intent to point out to readers how ignorant many of us are about your homeland? Not at all. Um, you know, obviously uh, not a lot of people uh, know about Guam. It's a small island quite far away from the U.S., uh, from the American continent. And, uh, you know, in many of my books, I do try to open with a little introduction, like kind of a creative introduction, so that the reader can be grounded in, in some facts um, about uh, Guam's history, culture, and politics. Now, the cover of the book is a close-up of someone playing bingo. Why that picture? <laughs> so that is a, a picture that I took of my uh, paternal grandmother. Um, this was back in 2017 uh, when I was able to uh, return home 
uh, to Guam and, of course, accompany her to bingo, which was something that she always took me to uh, as a child and one of her favorite pastimes. And so that was a, a picture I took of her playing bingo, and it was uh, sadly the last time that I did see her live. She passed uh, the next year, 2018, at, at 96 years old. And um, so I wanted to honor her uh, throughout the book. She's kind of a, a major figure in, in the long poems. And, uh, of course, I wanted to honor her by, by featuring her on the cover as well. Well, condolences to you and your family on the loss of your grandmother. And I, I really enjoyed all of the poems in which she was included. And, Craig, I learned that there are a lot of different ways to say rice in Guam. And, and I have your grandmother to thank for that. Yeah, so my grandmother would always uh, or often pick me up from school and I would go to her house and, you know, just wait there until my parents were got off work. And, yeah, she would always cook for us. And one of the things she, she liked to cook was, was rice. And so I wanted to include, uh, you know, food throughout my book as well. It's an important part of our culture. And, of course, rice is one of our major staples. We are talking now with author Craig Santos Perez about his new series from unincorporated territory it's visual poetry and it's named amat give us a call if you would like to talk to craig he's on the line right now 1-800-99-NATIVE and we're gonna take a short break and we'll be right back Are you a Native American healthcare provider, recovery counselor, social worker, domestic and sexual abuse advocate, or traditional healer working in Native American communities? Dr. Ruby Gibson will begin an advanced immersion in healing historical trauma. This online masterclass in somatic archaeology uses the lens of a seven-generational recovery approach providing powerful modalities and is offered tuition-free to tribal members. Registration deadline is March 1st. Info at freedomlodge.org who support this show. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking now with Dr. Craig Santos Perez, a Chamorro poet whose poetry collection won the 2023 National Book Award. If you have a question for him or a question about the unincorporated territory of Guam, call us. Our number is 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Craig, as you shared earlier, uh, some of the poems are just loaded with these beautiful cultural elements like your interactions with your grandmother. Your poetry also includes some scathing commentary on settler colonialism in Guam. And one of the, the most poignant aspects of that I, I noted was this reoccurring motif in which you write the Lord's Prayer written among historical facts about Spanish colonization. And it's obviously a reference uh, about the Spanish, but specifically Catholicism and its influences on indigenous cultures of Guam. What else should readers take away from that? And, and what is that effect of it recurring like that through the course of a song? Yes, thank you for close reading uh, the poems. Uh, so Guam was a, a Spanish colony um, from about the 16th century to the 19th century. And, of course, uh, when the Spanish arrived, uh, you know, they missionized the island, uh, converted the people uh, to Catholicism. And, and so, you know, the Catholic tradition is very much rooted in, in our island. Uh, sadly, though, uh, one of the consequences of that is a long history of uh, sexual abuse and exploitation committed by, by the priests that were uh, stationed on Guam. And so that um, 
scandal kind of has been coming to light the past couple of years. And so I wanted to, uh, you know, critique, of course, that history and bring it to light as well, since it has been traumatic for our island, you know, for the individual, uh, you know, mostly altar boys who were impacted and, of course, their families as well. And so I wanted to really, you know, highlight some of the traumas um, that colonialism has caused uh, on Guam. You also write about Guam from the perspective of an expatriate. Why that? Why that perspective as opposed to someone more grounded in their homeland? Well, so when I was uh, 15 years old, my, my family uh, migrated to California, like many other uh, Pacific Islanders, and, you know, searching for uh, you know, better opportunities, education, and, and so on. And so, you know, for the last, you know, 25 years of my life, I've, I've been living away from home. And while I've been fortunate to be able to, to return, uh, you know, every couple of years, uh, it, most of my experiences at this point have been uh, living away from home in, in our diaspora. And so I wanted to, you know, also write about, you know, the impacts of, of uh, colonialism, one being, you know, migration, diaspora, and how that has kind of shaped our cultures as well. And, of course, our own struggles as diasporic peoples to uh, hold on to our, our native culture and to revitalize it, even though, uh, even when we are far from home. Craig, I understand you are prepared to read us a poem. In fact, it's the last poem in the book. Would you please? Yes. So this poem is called uh, Ars Pacifica, and it's kind of a, a statement of Pacific art. And uh, it's based on the actual experience I had, um, and I'm excited to share it with your listeners. It's about a, a three-minute poem. Ars Pacifica. I return home for the first time after 15 years away and visit an English class at one of Guam's public high schools. As I read aloud from my new book, I notice a student crying. What's wrong, I ask. She says, I've never seen our culture in a book before. I just thought we weren't worthy of literature. How many young islanders have dived into the depths of a book only to find bleach coral and emptiness? We were taught that missionaries were the first readers in the Pacific because they could decipher the strange signs of the Bible. We were taught that missionaries were the first authors because they possessed the authority of written words. Today, studies show that Islander students read and write below grade level. It's natural, experts claim, your ancestors were an illiterate oral people. Don't believe their claims. Our ancestors deciphered signs in nature interpreted star formations and sun positions, cloud and wind patterns, wave currents, and ocean efflorescence. That's why Master Navigator Papa Mao once said, quote, if you can read the ocean, you will never be lost, end quote. Now let me tell you about Pacific written traditions, how our ancestors tattooed their skin with defiant scripts of intricately inked genealogies how they carved epics into hard wood with sharpened points, their hands, and the pressure and responsibility of memory, how they stenciled petroglyphic lyrics on cave walls with clay, fire, and smoke. So the next time someone tells you our people were illiterate, teach them 
about our visual literacies, our ability to read the intertextual sacredness of all things, and always remember, if we can write the ocean, we will never be silent. No, oh, thank you so much, Craig. Now, is that the poem you read when you accepted the National Book Award? <laughs> it is the poem I read, but I must be honest, I did not think I would win, so I didn't prepare a speech. And so uh, walking up to the podium, I had to kind of improvise what I wanted to say. And after I, you know, tried to thank everybody I, I could remember, uh, I decided to, to just read a poem as, as my main part of, of my speech. So it was a bit, uh, because I was not prepared and very surprised, but after I read it, it, it felt very appropriate. Now, one of the interesting elements of, of that writing is that it's it's more of like an essay form, and it's written in the first person as opposed to the other poems, which are more lyrical and, and more like along the lines of what some might think of as traditional poetry. Why did you choose that format for that last poem? You know, for, for several of the poems throughout the book, I do, you know, they are more what we would call a narrative poem. So they have kind of a, a plot and, uh, you know, setting and structure and so on. And, you know, I like to play around with, with narrative poetry, give it a kind of uh, post-colonial, post-modern twist, and, but still kind of have a heightened language and lyricism and musicality as well. But just like kind of weaving together a narrative, a lyric, and then, of course, a working with visual poetry as well. Now, you are based in San Diego, a city that has the largest Chamorro population in the United States. I understand about 9,000 people. Tell us a little bit about that community there and how they maintain their cultural ties to Guam. Sure. So historically, the Chamorro community here in San Diego um, actually migrated here because of, of our service in the U.S. military. Uh, many Chamorros and Pacific Islanders uh, have enlisted in, in the armed forces for, for decades. And, uh, you know, San Diego is a very militarized city, a large uh, naval uh, base. And so many of my people settled here uh, because of that service. Uh, you know, since then, uh, the community has, uh, you know, coalesced and, and formed uh, cultural centers and various cultural groups that focus on, you know, revitalizing language, uh, dance, food, and, and so on. And so it's been really great to to have been living here for the past six months and to get to know the community and to attend several uh, Pacific Islander and Chamorro festivals. And so, uh, you know, of course, it's nice to still be by the Pacific Ocean, even though uh, the water is, is much colder. <laughs> along <this coast. laughs> a different uh, a different view of the Pacific Ocean for certain. Um, Craig, the U.S. military presence in Guam that you just mentioned, that's a, a big part of your poetry, and um, it's referenced in, in many of the writings in the book. Um, what is it that you want readers to understand about that issue of the U.S. military and its long history uh, and even its contemporary activities there on the island of Guam? Yeah, so Guam became a, a U.S. territory after the Spanish-American War in 1898. And so over the past 100-plus years, uh, the U.S. has mainly used our island as um, a military base. And uh, today, about 30% of our entire landmass is occupied by military bases and, and installations. And Guam is, uh, you know, unfortunately for us, a, a very strategic location 
in the Asia Pacific region, which, as I'm sure your your listeners know, is right now very a hotbed for a conflict between you know the U.S., China, North Korea, and Russia. And so, um, you know, pretty much for my entire life, the the U.S. military has been uh, building up its bases and and capacities on Guam, uh, leading to too much environmental devastation, pollution of our lands and waters, and of course, high rates of, of cancer and other diseases amongst our people. And so in my poetry, as well as in, in my activism, I have written uh, many critiques about uh, U.S. militarism on our island. And you know, poetry is just another uh, creative uh, form of activism uh, in my life. Fascinating. Craig, what can you tell us about the poems that you wrote in the Chamorro language? You even include a glossary of translated terms to help readers. Uh, Fascinating. Um, And like I said, I was just so intrigued by some of the different expressions and and like the word rice and how many different ways there are to interpret rice and how to how to pronounce it. Yes. So growing up on Guam, it was a very uh, multilingual uh, place and Unfortunately, though, our, our school system, at least when, when I was a student, uh, was, was very colonial. So, you know, it's based on the American education system. So we, we would learn more about American history, culture, and, and the English language than we ever did about our own indigenous culture and language in school. And so I, I never grew up uh, learning how to write in our native language. And, you know, unfortunately, I am not fluent in our native language either. Uh, it wasn't really until I started writing poetry as uh, a young adult that poetry became a space where I felt I could, you know, make attempts to revitalize uh, the language for myself and through poetry. So I started including, you know, just individual words, uh, phrases, uh, sometimes sentences, uh, still very elementary. Um, but uh, for me, it's a very powerful and a symbolic gesture um, that poetry has kind of become that space where I could. Uh, you know, hold on to to parts of my language in in, um, in this very you know powerful space. Let's also talk more about the food, and uh, of course, there's the traditional foods that your your grandmother would cook for you, the rice dishes, but you also write about processed foods like spam, Vienna sausage, and corned beef, and and kind of compare and contrast, if you will. Uh, the significance of the traditional foods versus these contemporary processed foods and, and how it relates and, and how it uh, molds the lives of people there in Guam. Yeah, so Spam is, uh, you know, very popular in Guam, uh, across the Pacific, and, of course, I know across Native America as well. And, you know, obviously Spam is, is a deeply colonial, even uh, militarized food that arrived to our islands, you know, after World War II and has, now become you know one of the the protein staples of our diet unfortunately uh this has led to you know very many cases of uh obesity diabetes heart disease and other uh you know diet related issues for my people and you know sadly about 90% of food on guam is imported and um many of our traditional food uh products you know, such as fish and, and coconut, are, are also become endangered uh, due to invasive species in terms of the coconut trees and uh, overfishing, uh, which is a, a huge problem across the Pacific. And so sadly, that move from our traditional indigenous diets to 
now kind of American processed foods, uh, capitalist diets has, you know, wreaked havoc on our bodies as well as on our, our uh, agricultural systems. Um, but thankfully, there is a movement among some to decolonize our diets, to revitalize kind of indigenous uh, food systems and food ways, and to, um, you know, hopefully, you know, experience kind of what some call food sovereignty uh, in the future. Well, as a, a native reader, and I think so many other native readers can relate to that because I, I think uh, that's one thing as indigenous people, so many of us share a connection to, to foods like Spam and we all have our own little recipes for how to prepare it and, and things like that. Craig, um, the series from Unincorporated Territory uh, and of course this, uh, this collection here that's uh, published in Amat. Where does it stand uh, with regard to the rest of the whole series? And talk a little bit about the volumes and how you conceive them and you plan these out. Are you following a specific plan with how you release these different uh, volumes and collections? Uh, I wish I wish there was a plan. <laughs> it's mostly been improvisational, to be honest. Um, back when I was when I was 24 years old, I was in an MFA program at the University of San Francisco. And so basically we you know, had about two years to write my, my first book, my first manuscript. And, uh, you know, I wanted, of course, to write about, you know, my homeland and my, my native culture. And so after those two years, I, I had, you know, a, a full book, but I had so many more stories to tell and so many more, uh, you know, family members and, and ancestors that I wanted to honor. And so that was when the idea first came to me to, to, write a series of books to not feel that pressure to say everything in one single volume, but to uh, be open to having, you know, a, a kind of continuous uh, series of books where I can tell these, these stories. And, you know, another one of my inspirations was actually a native writer, uh, Simon Ortiz, uh, his book from Sand Creek. And I really love the idea of having the from uh, in, in my title as well. And, you know, not just to say I'm from an unincorporated territory, which is Guam's political status, but um, to suggest that the books are also excerpts. They're from a larger project that is ongoing. Um, and so my first book was published in 2008. And 15 years later, this is now the fifth volume. And so I've been working on it for about, you know, almost 20 years. And it's it's totaling about maybe 600 pages of, of interwoven poetry. Uh, there are times where some poems continue across the book. So I'm able to, for example, tell different parts of my grandparents' lives as they have, you know, lived them these past 15 okay. years. And, Greg, I'm so sorry, but we are out of time, brother. But uh, I want to thank you again for joining the show and uh, looking forward to more of your poetry and other writing in the future, okay? Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I want to encourage all of our listeners to join us on Monday for a look at why museums are taking down their native exhibits. And I'd like to give a shout out to all of the hardworking producers and engineers and other crew that make the show Native America Calling possible, as well as our parent company, Quantic Broadcast Corporation in Anchorage, Alaska. I'm Sean Spruce. Have a safe, relaxing weekend. Does your club, institution, or other group need custom-branded apparel? A wide variety of T-shirts, hoodies, and much more, all custom-printed or embroidered, are available from NativeScreenPrinting.com, a division of Skyscreen Printing who support this program. 
Lakota-made indigenous first medicines and eco-friendly personal care products are small batch prepared in the Lakota traditions using sustainably harvested natural and organic ingredients and all can be found at lakotamade.com who support this show. Cachet. February is American Heart Month. Protect your heart by eating healthy, staying active, and managing stress. Heart disease can run in families, so talk with elders about your family history. For more information, contact your local Indian health care provider, visit healthcare.gov, or call 1-800-318-2596. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. El Aqua. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.